This is the Team of Warriors podcast, strength through leadership. We're going to talk today to Gadi, who is an IDF veteran uh, from Yom Kippur War. And from the background I have about you, you were born in Canada, Gadi? Actually, I was born in Israel, on Kibbutz Kfar Right, in Israel, and then you moved to Canada. Sorry, yes. my bad. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he returned to Israel um, to uh, perform his uh, service, his mandatory service. That's when the Yom Kippur War broke out. And uh, after the war, you moved to the U.S. and um, basically moved into sales and the corporate world. And, um, and he's a big shot now and he's giving us his time. So let's listen to what Gary has to say. Um, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more and, uh, you know, about where you grew up and, you know, what Israel meant for you and why you decided to go back and, and, and serve? Sure. So I was, uh, so my parents were Zionists. They moved to Israel in 1950 uh, to build uh, kibbutz. And so uh, they lived in Kibbutz Kfar Darom, south of uh, Ashkelon. And I was born there, lived there for two years. We then moved back and I grew up in Canada. In 1970, when I was 18, I moved to Israel. I went into the Hesda program at Yeshivat Haaretzion. And I was, uh, I served uh, in the Shuyan, Chela Shuyan, and I did Samat in 1972, Tsevet Machaka for people who are not Shuyanaim. Um, what, what does that mean for, for people who don't know? I'm sorry to cut you, but what, what does that mean? It was the basic tank training, is, is two mm-hmm. months. At that time, was in Beit Sefer Lishion in Julis, and then there was two months of actual training, which is Tzamap stands for Tzavet, Machakap Tuga, you learned the basis yeah. of, um, and so I was, I was a tank gunner. In, um, in May, June 1973, I was stationed along the Suez Canal, along the Bar line, as um, here, and mm-hmm. um, actually there were some of the alerts that were going on, and we received warnings that Machar Muhammad, and we took out the 30 caliber machine gun and the night vision, and we're preparing for war in May, June, which was part of the deception campaign of, um, of the Egyptians against us. I ended up getting um, uh, to have it, and I was in the hospital. Mm, and, wow. Uh, and then at the end of Rosh Hashanah, I went back to Yeshiva and I was there to Yom Kippur. Um, in the middle of uh, Yom Kippur, they came, to, we were out in Gush Etzion. And mm-hmm. so in the middle of, of Tefillah, they came and they started taking uh, various soldiers that organized a minyan. Um, actually, uh, one of the minyan was led by, um, by somebody who was uh, the last casualty of the war, and um, we didn't know what was happening. At the end of Tfilasium, Yoel Benun got up and announced that the war had broken out, everybody should report to their units. I was stationed in uh, my um, shibutz Kravi was Machane uh, Naftali, I was a tank gunner. It was Khativa Mesh Arba, which was actually Khativa Tarel, the Palmach. 
and it had been converted to a Chativat Shuryon. We were, uh, our, we were supposed to go to the Golan in the event of war. And so we drove up there, we got our tziyud, we waited for orders. And then because of what happened, um, what happened was when Chativa Sheva went up to the Golan, they took the tanks of Chativa Meyashiv Invitesha, which was the Chativa Kiyus Mahir for the Golan. Chativa Meyashiv Invitesha took our tanks and went up to the Golan. And then they sent us down to Shifta Machanad Natan to find tanks on our own, just to scrape up all the training tanks from the various places. So we do, so we had to find our own tanks. And then there were no Movilim. And so we had to drive on tread from, uh, from basically wow. the Negev uh, to uh, we got to the Ezer HaMitla, and basically, on no food, um, no sleep, and so food, uh, so in hindsight, it was a perfect Petri dish to create trauma, with confusion, mm-hmm. with shock, with surprise, with no planning, and so we got, Monday morning, October 8th, we got to the Ezer HaMitla, and uh, they told us, they, the instructions were as follows. Um, put a shell in the cannon, start driving. When somebody shoots, shoot back. Wow. That was- well, Gandhi, let me ask you uh, just uh, a question before we move on. This is uh, extremely interesting. And I mean, for those who are listening, who maybe don't know, um, the, before the war broke out, and you spoke about that, there was a lot of waiting and a lot of uh, deception, right? So basically, um, intelligence was pointing at a certain date and the date was not happening. Um, what was it like from your perspective to be constantly waiting for a war that didn't happen? In uh, today, every, uh, you know, I, what I can tell you from my experience is, for example, from a mission that we're waiting to, for it to happen, it gets canceled you lose sort of like your respect for, for the danger that may come. You lose your focus in things that, that could happen. Uh, before Tsukeitan or other wars, more recent wars, similar situations happen, although maybe not as um, advanced as it was when you were there. What could you tell us about that? Um, so I think the word, and I, I see we're probably, we're gonna take more than 45 minutes. Oh. starting at this place. So it's really um, confusion because the newspapers and Diane at that sign, Sarbitan was saying, no possibility of war, no possibility of war. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually had a situation. Uh, we were in the Mutzavim and we had to do observation to the Egyptian lions. And we had, we were on those um, uh, observation towers about 100 mm-hmm. feet into the air and four hours of guard duty had to write down everything. And if we saw something, we had to phone. So I had a friend, to give you an example, who mm-hmm. said that he saw Anwar Sadat, came wow. down and visited. Mm-hmm. So the Magad from the Azor came at night. I remember he pulled us all out and, and he said a couple of things. He, he said, number one, you didn't see Anwar Sadat. And if you did see Anwar Sadat, you're in trouble because you can't write that down. You have to use a phone, that's immediately. But the point of it was, that there was a conflict between what we could see for our own eyes mm-hmm. 
and what the newspapers and all the superiors were saying. Right. And I think that put me into a lifelong belief. I don't trust the government. I don't trust the newspapers. I don't trust anybody. I trust what I see from my eyes as a matter of survival. But at the point, it created a lot of confusion, to your point. Wow, like, that's, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Which accentuates the trauma. All right, awesome. So I know you're short on time, so let's get back to that point where they told you put a shell in the, in the, in the tank and, and drive. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay, so, so based on this, we will probably get to the war story, and you may want to think about more segments because afterwards, 40 years later, what led me back to uncover this? Yeah. So we went, we're just driving up hills all day long, and first my knees were shaking, literally, because the next hill I might be dead. So there was no intelligence, there was nothing. It was, we were the intelligence. And um, at night, we finally went into, um, it was time to go to sleep. So we went to, to Hanyan Kravi. And then somebody heard engines and there was some confusion and noise. So in Shiyon, there's a Tergolet. If you hear engines and, you don't, and it's dark and you don't know who it is at that time when there's no night vision. So there's a Tergolet. If you hear engines, then you know that it's not yours and you can shoot. Hmm. And that's exactly what happened. And then we were in Croft. We, we, we were in the middle of an Egyptian artillery and, and infantry, and we came under fire, uh, artillery fire and tank fire, and we were shooting. I, I, I hit a tank at, um, at night with the Me'ich, which normally, you can't do, but I did it. So, and then, um, I think we're in battle. To me, it seemed like five minutes. So there's another, what happens in, in, in combat, there's time compression, right? Your brain, right. There's, there's auditory exclusion. You don't hear everything, mm -hmm. you don't remember. Because of when the heart rate goes up to 140, 150, all these things happen. And then I went to a, uh, so I'll be brief. So then I think we slept for an hour or two. So this is by Tuesday morning already. This is three days, no night no sleep, mm -hmm. no food. And then uh, we went up to a firing position and we're firing at Egyptian infantry. And then um, my tank was hit uh, by a Sagra missile. My tank commander on the Tatran, he was standing right above me, went over my head and um, it split him in two. And, wow. um, and so he was killed. So I'm just giving you brief details. I'm not giving you the whole story because each one of these episodes later on, in, right. when I got treated for PTSD, there was a lot there. And then so for two or three days, we were, so I'll just give you a brief summary. Um, so our tank, the peritelescope was hit. I was holding it in my hands, it exploded. So the tank was mushpat. Then, uh, so there were three, we were missing. We gave his body to the Rabbanut Zvaid. It took, for, for three weeks, his, he was, Nehadar's parents didn't know because he didn't wear a, um, he, he didn't have a dispute, uh, mm -hmm. even though he gave his name to the. So then we went to pull out a tank that got stuck. It lost the tread in the desert. And uh, it turned out that it was a tank Magad. And the Magad, his name was Amnon Eshkol. You can see him here. He was, he became the Samchat, later the Machat during the war. They were missing a gunner. I was the gunner. And um, 
so they took me to his tank. So I became Ritzavet Samchat. He was a Magad, became Samchat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were participating in the Kravot Tablima, which was very intense artillery. Um, the most intense battle, really, and I, I have a TED talk on this, was October 14th, the major battle where the Egyptians attacked with a thousand tanks to try and break through. We're under intense artillery. We're freaking out. And uh, Amnon calmed everybody down. And we defeated the attack. Then Amnon sees uh, a gdud of T-62 tanks, which at that time of Egyptians, that's maneuvering to outflank us. The Machat does not answer. Amnon takes four tanks and he mounts an attack on the 30 tanks and he destroys, he, he, they destroy 16 of the 30 tanks. The Egyptian wow. battalion withdraws. All three of the tanks, all my friends in the tanks, they were all hit. Amnon rescues everybody. One was dead, 11 wounded. And then on the way back, he rescued another three people, including a friend of mine. He was left for dead because <laughs> wow. there was blood coming from his head. So that, in hindsight, that, that battle, I did a lot of trauma therapy, but that changed my life because this was the most impressive leadership I ever saw in my entire life. And I had to figure out how he did that. To make mm-hmm. a long story short, to continue the war, we then went through the Tzlicha. We crossed over the canal. We were fighting. Um, we were in Kalman uh, Magen. There were, three, there were three divisions, Ariel Sharon, Bren and Kalman Magen. Albert Mandler was our Mithakedubda. He was killed watching an attack by us. I personally met him, Mandler, when he came to visit me on, on the canal. Um, and we ended up the war at um, uh, Adabia, the port of Adabia on the Gulf of Suez, where we, can, we completed the encirclement of the Egyptian army. And we're stationed. Um, near uh, Jebel Attica, Jebel Janifa, long kilometer 101 on the highway from Suez to Cairo. Um, we were then, we stayed there, I think till February. Then we were the last Hativat to leave. Uh, and then they sent us up for another 45 days to um, the Ramah. We're then in, in combat in, uh, in the Ramah till May. So essentially the war went from, um, from October 8th for us, I think through somehow through the end of May. And uh, in hindsight, that had a lot to do, uh, that also further accentuated the trauma. That's a short summary of the events. That, that is a very short summary of the <laughs> event. It sounds like there's, there's a lot to, to, to talk about there. Um, I, I remember one of the things you said was about the protocols when you're in a, in a night parking of tanks and you hear other engines, right? And that reminded me from infantry, something that I would call the, the Noel Pantel or the Panther protocol, where basically everybody gets down at the same time and anyone who's still standing gets shot, which is very similar to that. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would like to ask you about Amnon. Um, what, are, what do you think was the, the leadership characteristics that you identified afterwards? Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and what happened to him also and what's, you know, what you can tell us more about, about him and his influence on you and on the battle, of course. Yeah, so Amnon went on to sign on at that time. There was a lot of officers were killed. Mememi, Mempei, Magadim, that whole Shifa was wiped out in Shiryong. So they asked a lot of um, 
reserve officers to sign on Keva so that they could help train the new officers. Anon did that, and he ended up becoming a machat, and he, he, he made Tat Aluf, and he was Mufakeda Nachal, and he actually set up Hativat Nachal. So mm-hmm. I think that was part of the trauma was that the Nachal had no organized Hativa. It was really important. Uh, for me personally, I, so I came to America, I got married, had a family, I was in the insurance business, and one day I just decided I have to do something else. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so what I enjoyed doing was I enjoyed talking to people and I facilitating meetings. And three people told me you should work for a company called Vistage, V-I-S-T-A-G-E. What they do is they facilitate roundtables for executives, for owners of businesses, and um, also do coaching for them. So I started working with Vistage in 2007. And um, at that time, I had this instinct, I have to reconnect with Amnon. I somehow got back to leadership. Leadership was really important on my mind. It was something that was very deep for me and it was somehow connected to Amnon. That's what I knew. And, um, and I think from your point of view, this is the more interesting and fascinating part of it and more helpful for soldiers who are, have PTSD. So I did not believe that I had any problems at all because in my mind, I had all my hands. I had 25 friends who were killed in action and I was fine. Uh, I had a few friends who were burnt, a few friends who lost their arms, but I was fine in my opinion. And basically I did almost nothing in the war and everybody I knew did more than I did. That was my belief about what had happened to me. Uh, But I also had this other belief that there was something that I have to learn, something I don't know, and it's related to Amnon. So when I became a chair with Vistage and I started teaching leadership, I went back and I visited Amnon for the first time in 30 years. I tracked him down. He lives in Kibbutz Enema Fratz. He's uh, he's now over 80 and and he's almost blind, but his mind is sharp, 100%. And... um, I started talking to him and we ended up talking for two hours. And when I left the meeting, my sister says, the one thing I said after the meeting, his wife said to me, first of all, thank you so much that you came. He's starting to talk about things that we've been married 50 years. I have not heard, but he's telling you. Wow. So we started to talk, right? And um, my sister said, she says, you know what you told me after that meeting? I said, no. She says, at least I'm not crazy. I know I'm not crazy because I'm talking to him and it's real. Everything that happened, all these things that stayed in my mind that on a subconscious level, they were driving my life. They were driving me to leadership. They're driving to him. And so I, as I was coaching these leaders, I go to Israel every year, sometimes twice a year. I would talk to them for hours and hours and hours. I'd record some of that. And he kept telling me about myself. He kept telling me. And then one day, about, he, start, he starts making up things. I don't understand why he's making up things. Why would he make up things? He wouldn't make up things. And I was confused for a couple of years. And one day he looks me in the eye maybe five or six years into our conversation. And he says, do you remember the ambulance that was burning in front of my tank as we were waiting to cross the canal? It was our ambulance, it was on fire, we could hear the screams and we couldn't help them. Do you remember that? I said, no, I don't remember that. 
So he looked me in the eye and he said, you were there. You were right behind me. You saw it. You deleted it. So you might have forgotten it because of the effects of combat. Right. He, he said you, you, your brain couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, I asked myself, okay, so I don't, I don't remember that. If I don't want to remember it, I don't want to. But what's the last thing I remember before I don't remember? And I had this image of a burnt out bus, which was a bus on the Chavasinit that brought Sanchanim there. Wow. And I felt nauseous and I felt like a black screen. Mm -hmm. Eventually, a coach I was working with suggested that I get therapy. So I resisted. I didn't want to get therapy. I didn't think I had a problem. I wasn't going to talk to a shrink. But my coach convinced me and I went. But she said, just find a therapist who deals with combat, nothing else. Mm -hmm. So I went and I spoke to this therapist and he said, so tell me a scene that you remember. I told him a scene about the bus. He said, do you know what that is? I said, no. He said, that's like when a woman is being raped, she'll hyper-focus on something in order not to see something worse. Mm -hmm. You're hyper-focused on that in order not to see something worse. I started doing therapy, and I'll tell you about the therapy and the difference between what worked and what didn't later. And about a year, when I would think about the bus, I heard a voice saying, mm. And so trauma is, is, is different for different people, but the, and it depends on the meaning we give to it. The meaning I gave to that, the thing I didn't want to see, was that these were the bodies of the Tzanchanim from the Chavasinit that had been killed. And I saw there are too many dead Tzanchanim. They don't know what they're doing. We're crossing the canal. We're all going to die. We're going to die. Mm -hmm. So, let me, uh, yeah. uh, let me ask you something. You mentioned that I'm not, you mentioned that you were in, in conditions where basically there's no plan, there's no intelligence, there's just drive and, and, and you know, survive. Uh, but you mentioned that Amnon was able to calm people uh, during this chaotic time and right. the situation and, and, and make people basically fight and eventually even have a, a positive results on battle. How, how do you think he did that? So this was the question of my life. And mm -hmm. uh, how do you stay so calm? Um, so that even, even today, people come back and say, I still remember the calm on the radio. So uh, what I really discovered in my conversations with him, he would tell me, and I was looking to become a leadership expert. So I was wanting him to tell me about leadership, but he didn't. He kept telling me about myself. When I went back to him, he said, you're empathic. You feel people's emotions, lead them that way. And as I talked to him over the years, he would tell more and more about myself, and I didn't want to hear it. But eventually what I discovered, I have this coaching system that I now call the five core leadership powers, was that mm -hmm. each great leader, that Amnon had five core leadership powers. He could stay calm under pressure. He was courageous. He was compassionate. Uh, he was very skilled. And he was strategic because he saw the whole picture. Those powers that were always part of him from the time he was a child are core to his ability to be a great leader. What I really discovered was that he was telling me my own powers. I was always strategic. I was always practiced. At night, I would go to the tank shed so I could practice more, so I could be 
whatever I did, baseball, hockey, sports, whatever I did, I practiced so I could be the best. That was one of my skills, but not all of them. And what I was missing, the thing that was calling me back was a part of myself that I'd left on the battlefield. And for me, the empathic part, the courageous part, and that I was flexible and adaptable because I went from one tank to another when I wasn't in his tank. He told me, he said, the thing that I remember about the war, the image of victory I have is that at the Egyptian missile base that we captured, everybody else was looking for radios and equipment. You found yourself a Kalashnikov rifle and ammunition, and you're ready for the next battle. That's right. what I remember. That's so he great. was telling me all the qualities I had that had been buried in my subconscious, that when I added those to the three, when I added the three hidden qualities to the two qualities that I knew, that's when I became a cleat and I started having a really dramatic effect on people's lives. And that's what I coach now. So, uh, Gaddy, I, I wanted to ask a little bit more on the trauma side of things. Um, obviously, you're, you're in a, I guess, a key position to see both perspectives having been in America and, and being, you know, the, the experiences having been in Israel. And I know we see more and more as the years go by, the, there's a lot more focus on trauma and, and people understand that it is something that exists, that maybe if we look 10, 20 years in the past, it was something that, uh, I don't know if people just didn't understand it, didn't realize they had it. Um, maybe they didn't understand the signs that, that they were seeing, but specifically, in Israel, um, I know that only in the last few years it started coming out as, as something that's recognized, especially by the Ministry of Defense and the Army. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that and, and hear a bit from you on that. Sure. So what I have discovered in my coaching work is that there's a huge amount of undiagnosed trauma, particularly I, I work with leaders. And, and really, the leaders I work with are high achievers that the high achievement masks an internal experience. At some point, high achievement breaks down as it doesn't cover up the pain of the internal experience and they are willing to look at their lives. So I probably sent more than 30 people to therapy because leaders come to me for problems um, related when I see them avoiding issues. So one of the hallmarks of trauma, so let me put it this way. Um, when we, and I'll tell you how the brain works and what happens. And there's a huge amount of undiagnosed trauma. There's a lot of leaders that have it. The anxious leader who are never satisfied to achieve as much as they can. They don't know why. And the answer is unresolved trauma, either from their life or from childhood. According to statistics, 25 to 40% of all U.S. Army combat PTSD, uh, people who have PTSD, there's an underlying childhood trauma that robbed them of their resilience. So in, in my work, certainly, since I started telling my story and talking about it, I solve people's lives. My system of the five, co of the five core leadership powers explains their life to them. And uh, yes, there's a huge amount of undiagnosed trauma that runs people's lives. How would you say um, that you can, how can one realize that he has a PTSD? I feel like the, the first challenge is probably understanding that you have that. And you mentioned that yourself, how it took you so long 
to understand you you had a, a, a trauma what what would you tell people is a you know a way of uh, figuring it out faster so the fastest way i know is to tell my story uh because people like me are in denial i'll give you an example i was coaching somebody and they said there's somebody in our company he's a u.s army ranger uh there's a certain incident that happened would you talk to him for an hour and i've talked to many veterans like this u.s army and i and it goes like this do you have ptsd either say no or they say they tell me i do meaning they're in denial they don't believe it the second question i ask do you have any questions do you want to talk about it no then i say okay let me tell you my story so i was talking to this ranger 29 30 years old didn't have a problem in his mind he was six years as u.s army ranger six deployments that's a very intensive pace mm -hmm. um uh so i told my story some of the stories of the healing from the therapy and i sit there and the guy's just like rocking like this he's rocking and his face gets red at the end of an hour it's almost like a spiritual experience and he said every single thing that you told me there was something that i could relate in my own mind and so the most powerful thing is uh so trauma is about helplessness our power as human beings comes from choice we don't decide who we're born to, when we're born, anything about our lives comes from our choices. So if somebody is traumatized and they're pushed into therapy, they will resist. They want to go from helplessness to power. The journey starts by making a choice. They have, they, and they have to make the choice when they're ready to do it. Nobody can do it. So the power of storytelling is also an integral part of healing because it connects the neurons in the brain that have to do with it. The most powerful way that I found and people after me because they see me healthy they see my story i explain to them their life what happened what happened they can relate to me and then that that's what moves them that's the only thing because everybody else in their life is telling them you know there's a problem usually it's a spouse or a friend or a parent they're saying there's a problem in the relationship and it's you and what their mind says is you are not a problem there's not a problem because i was worse than you can imagine and i dealt with worse than you and this is not a problem and they're in denial yeah yeah, of course. Uh, it's natural. But uh, like you said, it, it, a lot of the, um, I guess, trying to see ourselves in, in your story, if I was talking, you know, in the position of someone uh, who's talking to you, allows the person to reflect on that, basically, more openly, or understand that, that maybe, you know, it's a uh, well, that, that it's more common than he thinks, or that it's, uh, you know, that he can, that you can understand it, maybe, that you can understand. It what takes away the, the stigma also, it takes away the people being scared to, to come out as, as having, you know, uh, these conditions, syndromes, whatever it is. I feel like as the years go by, it's, it's more, uh, more common to, for it to be okay. Um, by the way, I, the, the, let me tell you that right now, it's still in the Israeli military. I'm still in active duty. There's there's so many units that don't don't even think about it. Like um, a few, I think a year ago or something like that. I remember we had a a, a crazy um, event in in some town in the West Bank, and and two of my friends they went through a traumatic experience. Half an hour later, we were sitting down on a briefing for the next mission that day. And uh, just three months ago, there was uh, also a mission. There was they were they were shooting at us. One of my friends got 
like shot on his arm, like just a scratch on his arm. And, and another commander, he was also shot at, but he got out of it. And and then he told me, and, and I was sure that there, you know, no one spoke to them. No one is even mentioning that there's maybe some post-traumatic stress disorder at all. I, I already expected that. But he told me that he was uh, having some injuries from training and things like that a few months later. And I told him, well, what about stress? Maybe you're stressed, you know? I mean, you, you almost died twice in, in the last year. And he said, no, nah, no way, man. We know how to deal with stress. And I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I, like, I know more than, than he uh, knows about, you know, accepting and understanding that, I guess. Uh, but it, it's still very uncommon. In, in the in the military and and and, and not uh, something that people take seriously unfortunately so this is why i'm driven to tell my story i think the power of my story is i, I have the combat story then i have how it affected my life for 40 years and then how i was able to release it and my motivation is for your friend and people like that and by the way when i talk to combat veterans exactly what happened in this conversation happens I tell a bit of my story, and then people, it immediately surfaces their relevant experiences, and then the conversation starts. I think the power of my story is that I talk about it openly. I talk about how it affected my life. I talk about what worked. I talked about what didn't work, and they can recognize for themselves, and then I give them books to read. The first book I read was called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's, it's really a foundational book. And, and the concept is every single experience that we have, it is recorded in our body and our nervous system. And I, I, have, I have it here. And his name is Bessel van der Kolk. It was the first word that book that I read. I, mm -hmm. I've read. Uh, okay, the body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. By Bessel van der uh, that I read and I just say to you is I've read I've got over 200 books here that I've read and studied to understand trauma I've developed some very powerful techniques that people can do on their own they don't need anything they, that will calm the nervous system so that's the key is to empower people to take in charge and it's not in our head it's in our body it's in our nervous system I can talk about the polyvagal theory which is the vagus nerve and how it affects and all the clues that gives us, like, I'll give you one example. I was in a wedding in Israel for my niece a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden there was the theater in the dance hall, it was boom, 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 boom. It was like, you know what it meant for me, and I had to leave. I was standing alongside, I wanted to get away from the noise. So when there's trauma, there's hypersensitivity to noise. And people would come up to me, I couldn't understand what they were saying. But what I understood from the book is when our body goes into a traumatic state, and I think we can do a talk on explain, a short explanation on trauma, how it affects the body. One of the effects is when it's traumatized, then we lose the ability to make meaning of words because our ear is focused on lower frequency sound because that's where threat comes from. Mm -hmm. I talk about the autonomic nervous system. So I can give people a framework for understanding what's happening in their body and normally they will have a physiological response and their brain will go to yes that makes sense that makes sense that's the beginning of empowerment to give them the tools because otherwise the conversation stays at the level you're at where people have symptoms it's undiagnosed it's unresolved and what happens is what is ptsd 
when our body goes into threat, the autonomic nervous system, you have to understand autonomic nervous system, it has autonomy to bypass thinking because thinking might slow us down. Mm -hmm. So we get this boost of adrenaline, um, cortisol that goes into our body that gives us extra energy, but we don't recognize it. Now, in a normal state, we'll release the trauma. It's supposed to last for a minute or two, and then we go about our lives. Animals do that. For humans don't, that energy stays in our body, and we stay in that state of threat most of our lives. Hmm. And so we have high, uh, we can't tolerate noises, we'll get easily triggered, uh, the predominant emotion in that state is anger. The body goes into a simplified, anything that's not necessary for survival. So I, I lose track of emotions like sadness or joy or things like that. There's one emotion that stays for a survival point of view, and that's anger. And the reason for that from a biological point of view is that anger will create adrenaline and it will save my life in that situation. Wow. So our bodies become optimized for that situation. When we stay in that state, we stay in fight or flight. So then what happens as human beings, we're either in social engagement, we're in fight or flight, or we're in freeze. When we're healthy, the optimal way to connect and get our needs met is through social engagement. When that fails, we go to fight or flight where our body's amped up and, we and we're on adrenaline all the time. When we're traumatized, we're in PTSD, people's ability to engage, to social engagement, to pick up vocal facial cues, micro signs, are you getting me? Are you not getting me? Do I understand each other? That ability goes away. People have a blank effect to their face. That's usually a sign to trauma. And the, the devastating thing is their ability to connect with loved ones, with family, with children is severely damaged. Hmm. Well, that's um, the damage that goes on that's the damage that can be fixed so i like before we finish uh, i think there's definitely a lot more to to go into with you and you know we'd, we'd love to have you back uh, for another session to go a little bit uh, more into depth um the question that that i wanted to sort of end off with is uh you know as someone who who's been through these experiences you know, a lot of Israeli parents don't want their kids going to, to combat roles in the army uh, just because of the things that they've been through. Um, your son obviously came here drafted uh, as a lone soldier. Uh, also to the Nachal, which, uh, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that Amnon did, uh, you know, was, was in the, the founding of that. Um, how, you know, how, how did that make you feel at the time? What, uh, you know, was there, was there more behind that decision than, than you know what it seems so at first like i think any parent i was nervous in hindsight so here's here's what happens i emulated unknown right my entire life because of what i saw my son emulated me mm -hmm. yeah. because of what he saw I didn't tell him a thing. I didn't tell him a word. Amnon didn't tell anybody. He just acted from his five core leadership powers. That's great leadership. That's what people follow. That's what I did. That's why my son followed me. Definitely. That's great. Are, uh, is the work that you do um, about leadership and uh, PTSD, is this something you do uh, at uh, the company that you're working on, is this a separate project? What, um, you know, where, where exactly does that uh, fall? 
Great question. So it's unfolding now. I've been working on this three years as I've been working. I'm on the verge of finalizing my talk. I want to make the talk about the battle and this mm -hmm. journey about leadership into a TED talk. And I'm working on that right now and posting it on my website. And mm -hmm. I'm anticipating within 90 days that I will have my website up about the five core leadership powers and, and start to develop this um, that way. Yeah. So we're definitely going to um, post uh, your website as well and encourage people to uh, learn about what you're, you know, what you've been talking to us uh, about today, um, which I think it's ex extremely relevant to anyone, obviously people who've been in service, but uh, certainly to every leader out there, also in the business world and, you know, the corporate world. Um, Daniel, is there anything else you want to ask? So, so like I said before, there's, there's definitely going to have to be another, another episode with you. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of questions to, to cover, um, but I think it's, it's definitely a good start to, to, to help people understand. And, and, you know, maybe there are people that, that have trauma that this will, will be something that helps them and you know, they can go further. They can find you on your website or, or whatever it is. Right. Like yeah. I, the first thing is, is awareness, right? Like they say in so many other things, like just knowing that it exists and that it's, it's, it's real and that you could get it is already a huge thing until you realize that I feel like there's no, no way you can move forward. Uh, but I want to personally also thank you for the time uh, and for opening up to us and, and telling us about your story and uh, the things you've been through and the things you've learned which come from a place of, of really wanting to, to, to do good by, by people. Uh, and, um, and that's very valuable. So thanks a lot. I appreciate that.